if you look at what's affecting cities today, we are subjected to a whole bunch of exponential trends. You know, our cities are bigger and more numerous than ever. We're having to cope with climate change, ever-increasing costs. And essentially, to me, smart cities is about how we respond to that exponentiality. It's quite different from the way cities have grown in the past. And it's one of those things I often think we really focus on the smart and we forget about the city. And it's not about what tech can do for the city. In many ways, it's about what the city can do for tech. Hi, Smart Community friends. Welcome back to the Summer Series here on the Smart Community Podcast. As you know, we're taking a little break from new content over the Australian summer holidays. And instead, we are sharing the replays of a few of our all-time favourite episodes. This week, we're sharing my interview with Sean Ordain, way back from episode 124, which was released in August of 2019. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great chat with Sean, the City Innovation Lead at Wellington City Council in New Zealand. Sean and I discuss the way the public service role of government shapes how decisions are made and that this comes with both opportunities and challenges for the government that can differ significantly from the responsibilities and operations of private companies. Sean then tells us how he sees New Zealand embracing smart concepts and a bit about the digital twin project that he was working on in Wellington. We talk about the benefits of using digital twin technology and how it's being used to build a new call centre and a new library. We finish our conversation discussing the need for Indigenous voices in the smart city discourse and the way different worldviews shape our smart communities. We'll be sure to get Sean back on the show in the future to get a full update about what he's been up to and also how our thinking has progressed since this conversation. But in the meantime, as always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Sean. How are you today? I'm good, Zoe. That's good to hear. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you are passionate about? Excellent. So my background's in urban planning. I went to university in Auckland, where I grew up, and learned about cities. And then I moved down to Wellington and combined my love of public service with urban planning and started measuring everything in sight, eventually ended up in smart cities. That's awesome. So tell us what sparked your interest in this smart communities or smart city space. So I grew up in South Auckland, which is a a really mixed community. It's a very interesting place to live. And going in on the train every day, I had quite a lot of time because Auckland's a sprawling city. And I got to see all sorts of people's lives that were leaving little marks on the city each day. And back then, planners were just starting to really embrace geospatial technology. And I realized I could use technology to better see how those people were leaving their marks. And it kind of just went from there. Yeah, cool. So what is a smart city or a smart community to you? Well, if you look at what's affecting cities today, we are subjected to a whole bunch of exponential trends. Our cities are bigger and more numerous than ever. We're having to cope with climate change, ever-increasing costs. And essentially, to me, smart cities is about how we respond to that exponentiality. 
it's quite different from the way cities have grown in the past. And it's one of those things I often think we really focus on the smart and we forget about the city. And it's not about what tech can do for the city. In many ways, it's about what the city can do for tech. Can you expand on that a little further? Because that's an interesting, I guess, way to put it, thinking more about the city or the people in the city, uh, which obviously we all talk about, but just flipping that and looking at how, I guess, the tech can enable something in this city rather than what piece of technology can we put in a city? Well, some of them, one of the easiest ways to think of it is we often get told cities have to compete the way software companies do. And people forget cities have markets, markets don't have cities. And there are a whole bunch of people in a city that are performing functions that actually have very little to do with the economic life in the city. I mean, one of the things that makes Wellington such a great place to live is our arts and culture scene. And yes, we make enormous amounts of money from it through uh, being one of the world movie capitals, but a whole lot of that artistic output doesn't make any money at all. It was never intended to. It just makes life a bit more beautiful. And when we start really thinking about cities in a technological term, there's sort of a risk we'll mechanize them. I mean, we're not after a data-driven decision-making process. What we're after is an informed democracy. And they sound very similar, but they're quite different in the way they work. Yeah. Someone said to me once that as a government agency or a local government or a city, you can't remove yourself from the market either. So you must think very differently about what services you're providing because there's not necessarily a set consumer that you can kind of, you know, if the economics don't work out, it's not like you can just say, oh, okay, well, we won't just, we won't do that anymore, which I think is a very different mindset to have than say a private company that can remove themselves from the market if, if the going's tough. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges for cities is we last far longer than any company structure ever will. So when we're embracing a technology, we also have to work out how does this move us to the next place we need to be? And can we move from that place to the place we're going to need to be after that? And you get this idea of permanence. It's quite an interesting one. So for example, how do we embrace a technology that isn't so much a solution, but a position that lets us succeed in the future? The other side of that is how do we also account for the fact we can do things to people? One of the big things that separates government from private enterprise is ultimately a government has a degree of power over its citizens and there's a certain involuntary factor to it. And that means that you're operating in a way that's got a duty of care. You've got a um, a responsibility. And sometimes you have to do things that seem a little bit strange but are necessary to preserve the welfare of this. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to this next question, which is why do you think that this smart city concept is so important? Essentially, smart cities, it's one of those things. It's a term I don't actually particularly ascribe to, but I can't think of a better one. So so I kind of get stuck with it. That's why I kind of moved to smart community. I felt better about it. Yeah, no, I I get that. Basically, I'm interested in uh, in a conversation about how our city's future works. And if you look at how we've designed our cities in the past, they've often been designed for quite a small group of people. And we haven't really got ways of retrofitting like an infrastructure of equity into them. So if you think about how we get around, you know, we devote a lot of road space to people who drive and live in the suburbs and have a family. That's a group of people that are actually quite diverse in themselves. 
but uh, there's also a lot of people who are not like that. And so one of the projects we did here in Wellington was we put in a thing called Blind which lets the visually impaired navigate the city using a series of beacons. Basically, you walk past a shop and it will say, this is a stationer's, and you walk in and it'll tell you where to find the notebooks. And it's something that the general population don't really know about. But for the people who need it, it very quietly gives them an independence in the city, a dignity, and lets them participate in ordinary life just the same way I would. And that's one of the things that smart cities really lets us do. It starts to make the urban fabric much more flexible and humanizes it. Mm, Yeah, and that inclusivity piece is so important that we miss out discussing because it doesn't affect, say, me as an individual. However, making someone who can't access a network now be able to do that in a way that's they gain independence and freedom and all those type of things can really be transformational in a group of people's lives. And I think that's one of the things that we can really get from this smart city concept that we're not talking about enough. The other bit I sometimes think we miss is we talk a lot about human-centered design and we sometimes forget that our cities are the home to much more than just us. So my favorite thing in Wellington is we have these kaka that live in my garden. They're a native parrot. 50 years ago, they were functionally extinct from Wellington. And now the city has more of them than anywhere else in the country, all because of the, the efforts that have been put in to eradicate predators, plant trees, sequester carbon, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, totally. I like that. And I was talking to somebody about this same concept that cities are not just for humans, but you know, thinking about the plants and the ecosystems and the biodiversity that we need or that we want to sustain what we need, but also that these places were once for a whole range of different ecosystems and how can we strengthen those given what we've we've done and what we've got now to try and make those things better. Yeah, totally. So how do you think that New Zealand is currently embracing the smart city or smart community concept? Well, as Kiwis seem to be a grumpy bunch, I think we're actually doing better than we think we are. If you look at each of the large cities, they've all got something going on, and many of them are much more holistic movements than you see in a lot of places. And because we haven't had uh, specialist funding and we haven't had a great deal of government oversight, it's meant that those projects and uh, systems have developed very close to the people they serve. So that side of it's really good. The downside is we're still not entirely certain how this all fits together into a smart nation. And we're having to work quite consciously on figuring out ways to create a space for many more voices to be heard in this area and for more people to participate. It's not just about having technically enabled city governments have a really smart city. You also have to have things like digital citizenship and digital identity sorted. You need to figure out how that infrastructure of collaboration with utilities providers, different companies, uh, different government agencies all work. And that's still very much a work in progress. Mm. Yeah, no. Well, tell us about some of the things that you're currently working on. So the project that's taking up most of my time at the moment is the city's digital twin project. Effectively, we have a first-generation digital twin, which is a fusion of building information models some large-scale geospatial models and things like sensors and consenting processes, et cetera, that tie tie it all together. And what we've learned from that is that we can make that physical impression of the city converge with the digital impression 
And where it joins together, we can alter what happens in real life, whether it's making a council service more effective and efficient, or whether it is making interventions like virtual power plants work, or figuring out how we're going to accommodate the many more people that are moving to our city, or proactively meet the challenge of climate change, that kind of thing. There's also some rather fun ones, like we've just about finished the upgrade of all of our streetlights to LED lamps, with about 12,000 of them. And the way we've done it means that we've now got a, a mesh backbone capable of supporting a very large scale Internet of Things. And so we can start to scale up what we've learned from our previous projects. And so it's all very exciting, really. Mm, cool. Can we go back to the digital twin? I think that it'd be really useful to hear some of the inputs that are required or the many, many inputs that are required to actually make a digital twin a reality. And then further to that, what are some of those real things that we can do with digital twin, but also the things that we would hope that we can do one day, but right now we don't have the inputs required to be able to do that. So there's three questions in one. But the first one, I think, is the many, many inputs that are actually required and then how it actually kind of works. So a digital twin for a city is, is quite different from a digital twin for a product. So... Before your iPhone was manufactured, say, there was a digital model of it that was used to instruct all the machines and test it and all the rest of it. For a city, it's a little bit different and that the scale you're working at is so much larger. So it's more like an ecosystem, which creates a digital impression of the city. And so some of the inputs that are required to make that impression are things like building information models. You need to also have the geospatial models, so you have the terrain, all the trees, all of the, yeah, all of the roads and assets, the underground infrastructure. And you also need to then tie that digital world to the physical one to make it live. So with that, you need things like uh, sensor systems so that you can perceive what's happening in the physical reality and mimic it in the digital. We've got a, a project at the moment called uh, Regulation as Code, Machine Consumable Regulation. That's taking all of the planning frameworks and the building frameworks, which underpin the, the city's operations, and turning those into natively machine-readable formats so that we can feed a regulatory aspect to that digital twin. Then there's the tests which are taking place to figure out how we can go from expecting building plans to building information models. And already with the council's own buildings, we've been using building information models to we use them to design a new call centre uh, to be more equitable in the way it operates. We've used them to shorten the commissioning times and engage with the community on a new library we're building up in the north of the city. And then the really complicated bit comes when you've got all of these things interacting together. So, for example, we get a lot of earthquakes in Wellington. It's one of the reasons it's so pretty that all these hills didn't get here on their own. And what we do is we do things like take the building information models strip them down to their lattices, and then those become the virtual artifacts to which sensors can be affixed, which start to tell us how the buildings are performing under the different stresses and strains. And then on top of that, you've got the big data sets like all of the expenditure information. So every time somebody buys something, you know, swipes a card, uses an electronic funds transfer, that information is amalgamated, anonymized, and then used to understand things like what is the health of a street. We use it when we've got civil defense problems to see where people are and where they aren't. 
We can't tell the individuals, but, you know, for example, by isolating coffee expenditure, we can tell where buildings have been occupied and where they haven't been occupied because people can't do without their coffee. And so it gets us to a place where you're going to have several generations before a true twin emerges. In our first generation, we use it to run very large-scale metropolitan virtual reality environments so you can stand in any streets in the city and see the geologic conditions, look at what the sensor feeds are putting out, look at new planning proposals. We use it uh, quite extensively with engaging with communities for climate change and sea level rise, helping them understand what it means for them. And then that started to feed through into things like the the first to zero plan. So it's the city's plan to get to zero carbon emissions and begin the adaptation necessary so that we thrive during these climate change events. Uh, we've used it in places, like I mentioned, with designing a new call centre. So we made a physical prototype just out of some cardboard and some old furniture we found, mocked it up on a one scale. But then we paired it with a building information model so that as you move the physical furniture, it would move the virtual furniture. And what that meant was we could run people with all sorts of different requirements through that physical space, change the digital space, and concurrently have different teams adjust things like signage the ordering, the furniture, etc., to make that more efficient. And then it's been used up in Johnsonville. So we're building a new library up there. It's called Waitohi. It's more of a hub than a library, to be honest. It's got a kindergarten on the top of it, a library. And it's attached to the pool complex. It's right next to the railway station. And what we've been doing there is putting thing, people like our kindergarten teachers through it so that they can write their lesson plans. Our librarians have been through it to see how they lay out their collections, that sort of thing. And what we're doing is transforming that building into a platform for customer service and shortening the amount of time it needs people to get used to things. And when we've got stuff that we haven't done before, like putting a makerspace into that library, we are able to order the equipment, knowing it'll fit, how it's going to work with the ventilation systems, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So do you have kind of you know data now that shows the benefits or you know I don't know the return on investment that you've gotten from this work? We do from particular projects, but we don't yet quite know the extent of the benefit we can gain because we haven't done the scaling tests as yet. Mm, which would be to come, I suppose. Yeah. So, for example, by putting um, commissioners into a three-dimensional environment with a new building proposal, we, we can shorten the amount of time they need to consider it by about half, simply because we're removing the abstraction. It's a lot easier if you don't have to read a building plan or a shadow diagram. So we, we know that we can save some money. We're just not so sure quite how much. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Let's move on to how we can better integrate. So how do you think we can better integrate across the different disciplines, governments and industries? So my colleague Julia, um, you've met Julia, she ran a really interesting project on alcohol harm. So what her task was to help inform our policymakers about whether we should have a liquor ban in two areas of the city. And so what Julia did was worked with our police force, which is a, from our central government and the health board and a whole bunch of other people, basically gathering their data, helping them release it to the public in a single platform. And basically what our councillors got was what our community got, which was a view of all of the police offences involving alcohol in those areas that were proposed. And it was really interesting to see how the data really informed that debate, it made it a lot more civilised. And in the end... One of the areas was voted through because the data supported it and the other was not because it didn't. And so 
we've been running a lot of data sharing with other public agencies to help with this. Because like any city, it's jurisdictionally very messy. Something like, say, begging or alcohol touches half a dozen different agencies. And the other part of it has been we were able to making the data open and making it available to our community so they can build stuff for themselves, which really does change the engagement dynamic. Instead of us asking their opinion on things, they show us what we should do, which is a lot more proactive. Mm, so using data to integrate. Yeah, integrating data itself is, a, is an interesting task, largely because we all collect data for different purposes. But we have found that being a city, we're incredibly interested in location. We don't really need to hold very much data on a person beyond the their details needed for them to pay their rating tax. So by proactively managing the privacy regimes, what we find is we can essentially stack this data up locationally and derive an awful lot of information from it. Mm. So what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? So when we're talking about things like machine learning, we're often looking at the driving straight to driverless cars and forgetting about all the other city systems. So if you look at my own profession in planning, the jobs which tend to be automated are either the very dirty or the very boring. And the way we train a lot of junior professionals, planners, accountants, is by getting them to do boring, repetitious tasks, which are being automated. And so you're seeing a change in the way that career patterns in the city work, and that's starting to translate into a change in the way office space works and the demand for it. And that can be incredibly disruptive. The other bit I don't think we're really talking about enough is the need for uh, Indigenous voices in our, uh, in our smart cities discourse. So in New Zealand, it's Māori, uh, but we also have very large Pacifica populations. They have very different worldviews, and often a worldview will inform what data you collect and then how, what you do with it once you've collected it. And unless we account for those worldviews and give them a system to proactively develop their capacity, there is a, a risk of a second wave colonisation occurring, this time from Silicon Valley as opposed to Britain. Mm, no, interesting. I, I totally agree that those different viewpoints really need to be honoured and respected and then brought to the table so we can all kind of move together on this because, yet yeah, I agree there's so much, there's a high potential that we will be increasing that divide in all those, you know, the technical divide, the technological divide, the digital divide, or I don't know if they're the same thing. But yeah, that the gap that we have now just getting greater and greater. And I think that's really where the government comes into play in this space. We cannot just let the technology happen to us. We need to be shaping that with all those voices that are typically unheard. Absolutely. The other part, which is more of a public service conversation than anything else, is around the role of government and market shaping. The public service has a really important job in making markets work, particularly when it comes to aspects like trust and monopolies. And what we're finding is that by using open technologies and open data in particular ways, we can essentially sacrifice one business case in order to create an entire market. And the reason why it's important to public servants is, like I said, the agencies we work for uh, will be around a long time. And so without markets that have clear entry and exit and trust parameters, it's going to be very difficult for us to do our work in the long term. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I think that long-term thinking and decision-making is something that 
we probably don't do well enough at the moment, particularly when it comes to these new and emerging technologies. We all get very excited and all these things start happening, but the actual impacts and what it enables and, and also what it disables is a real concern for me moving forward in this space because we don't have enough of that knowledge embedded in our decision-making boards and that's a real concern because how can we possibly continue to make decisions with the right or without the right people in the room? Mm. It's been so great to chat with you, Sean. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, no problem, Zoe. I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Well, LinkedIn is probably the best for me and Twitter as well, though I'm not, not the best at using it. I still haven't quite figured it out. That's cool. We can put the links in the show notes. Excellent. And people can click away and find you. It's been so great to chat with you. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast and I look forward to talking again soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're looking for support in podcast strategy and production, workshop design and facilitation, or communication and media advisory, get in touch. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.